The second Bible reading tonight comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, through to chapter 4, verse 5. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ, Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what the itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all duties of your ministry. Thanks, Maddie. Now, why don't we just take a couple of seconds, 20 seconds or so, to move around, greet each other, grab an outline if you don't have one and would like one. And there's also a full transcript of my sermon If for those of you who find that helpful, following along with the full transcript. So let's do that for about 20 seconds and I'll call you back in a moment. Okay, let's uh, get back to our seats. Okay, let's uh, turn to God in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do give us your word, where as we listen, we hear you speak. And we pray, Lord, that tonight as we consider the importance of your word, that uh, we'll be reminded of what the reformers did and how we should continue in their ways. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I want to start with a question. Why is it that Christians like you, like me, are so hung up on the Bible? Now, what is it that makes the Bible so special? That we would read it, that we would come together and hear it read, that we would come together and hear it preached that we would meditate on it, that we would use it in our prayers. You know, isn't the Bible, this book here, isn't it just a book? A book with, yes, you know, great stories, fascinating stories in the past, ancient stories, wonderful songs. 
proverbs, strange laws, and even, I'm not sure if you've noticed, an Asian angel. Notice that in the Bible? No, that was just, just Hollywood's version. If you haven't been watching the Bible, don't worry about it. But isn't this just a book? Just words on a page. The Bible. You see, when I was younger, a younger Christian, I was uh, challenged on this. You know, why would any sensible human being, any sensible person with a brain, depend on a book? Depend on a book to teach them about life. I mean, if you've got a brain, that should be enough to tell you how to live your life, to make your own choices, to make your own decisions. Isn't, isn't, isn't it so silly that anyone will put their trust in a book that is so ancient? Is it just a book? But of course, many of you who here claim to be a Christian would say, of course it's not just a book. This is in fact the word of God. God has spoken and it has been recorded down for us. It's not just a book, it's the word of God. If that is your answer, well, well that's good. That's what I like to hear. That's a good start. But then I want to ask you, is it in fact enough? Okay, so we can say that this is the word of God, but is it enough? All the pages, all the words between the two covers or, or all the text in your iPhone app, is that enough for us? Enough for us to know God? Is it enough to know God? I mean, if I, if I want to know God, don't I need to feel God in some mysterious way, mysterious way, miraculous way? Don't I need to sort of hear God's voice somehow to, to prove that God is real? Do I need to hear God speak to me to know that I actually know God? Do I need to feel God's presence around me? Or is this enough to know God? Or is this enough to know how I can be saved? Is it really enough, just this book, enough to tell me how I can be saved? Don't I need to feel some, some experience of, of conversion? Don't I need some, some you know, feel-good experience to make sure, to confirm that I'm saved? Or is this enough? Or is this enough to teach me how I must live? as a person, for my good and for the good of others. Do I depend on this? Is this enough? Well, you see, these are important questions, aren't they? And these are questions we need to get right. Is it just a book or is it more than that? Well, you see, these are the questions that, that this one man, Martin Luther, this German monk in the 16th century, he was asking these questions. He asked these questions, and he was the one who coined the phrase sola scriptura, scripture alone. And that's because he came to appreciate that this is, in fact, not just a book. It's, in fact, the word of God, the word of the living God. And he came to recognize and appreciate that it is, in fact, enough. It is all he needs, all he needs to know God, to know how to be saved, and to know how he must live. And so today what we'll be doing is we'll be spending the bulk of our time considering what happened at the Reformation. Now this will help set the scene and the context for this month as we consider these uh, Reformation slogans. So now we're going to be considering a bit of the church back that time in the 16th century, early 16th century, so the late medieval church. What was that like? What was the church like at that time? What was the context that Luther was responding to? 
but we'll be considering three areas of the life of the church during that time. This will give us a better appreciation on why Christianity must be a religion of the Word of God. So firstly, throughout the medieval period, people went to church not to hear a sermon, not like what you're doing now. People went to church not to hear the Bible read. In fact, people went to church to experience what they call the Eucharist, the Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper. That's why people went to church. They went to Mass. In fact, they didn't call it church. They went to Mass for the Eucharist. And that's because the Eucharist in the Roman Catholic belief is that what happened was the substance, so the bread, we'll actually celebrate this tonight, but with the right theology. Okay. Uh, uh, What they believe, or what they still do believe, the Roman Catholic Church, is that the bread and the wine at the Eucharist would actually, in fact, become the real flesh and blood of Jesus. Actually becomes Jesus there. And so people wanted to go there to experience and to see this miracle, this bread and wine becoming Jesus. And so they were brought into the presence of Jesus. That's why they were there. And so this is um, a, a doctrine, a teaching in the church called transubstantiation. The substance is changed to the substance of Christ. And so during this time, people um, were not, in fact, they were only allowed to have the bread. They were not allowed to have the wine. And that's because they were afraid that people might spill the blood of Christ. So the parishioners, those who came, they were only allowed to have the bread. But you see, it actually took on quite a superstitious feel. Uh, What happened was, during this time, um, the priests who performed the Eucharist, they were in fact behind a screen. So the priest was in this holy area, and they were separated from the rest of the church. And behind this screen, it's called the private mass, they would do the Eucharist where the substance would become the substance of Christ, the body and blood of Christ. So the parishioners, the people who came, they could not see that. But they knew when the change happened when they heard the bell. That's why they've got the bell boys, the, not the bell boys, the altar boys. <laughs> so they would ring the bell and that's when the people would know that the substance had been changed. And so the people went to Mass not for the teaching of God's Word, not for the reading of God's Word, but to experience this miracle. And it led to a lot of superstition around it because they saw the bread as having miraculous powers. So this is during the medieval church. And so there are stories where people would secretly, don't do this tonight, but people would secretly take the bread, they won't eat it all there in the church, they'll keep it in their pocket, and when they go home, you know, they, saw, they see those uh, pieces of bread as having miraculous power, and so they would give it to their sick cow, hoping that that will heal their cow. And so when the cow eats Christ, the flesh of Christ, hopefully it will get better. And so it became quite superstitious. So Luther, Martin Luther, he was living during this time. This was what church was like. People did not come to hear the Bible read and taught. People came for that miracle, that experience of the presence of Christ. So Luther, living at this time, having, uh, being a person who read scripture for himself, being a, a, a monk himself, and later on becoming a professor in theology, he read the scriptures and he thought, is this in fact right? Is this practice meant to be the practice of the church? And does the church have the final authority to say on what must happen? 
Or is it the scriptures? Is it the scripture alone that must be the final authority? So that's the first thing during this time, what church was like. Now what about the popes, the leaders of the church, the, the big leader of the church? So the pope, they're also known as the bishop of Rome. So if you're the bishop of Rome, you're the pope. Well, they were meant to be the spiritual leaders, the people who led the people in living the right way, loving Christ, loving each other. They were meant to be sort of like the moral standard, the one who showed people how to be a Christian. We see back then, for about half a century before the Reformation took place, all the popes, they were good administrators. They were good sort of leaders. They were good political and military leaders. They were a patron of the arts, but they were generally not very impressive spiritually, bad spiritual leaders. They, in fact, lived like kings in all splendor, in all they enjoyed. They were corrupt, notoriously immoral as well, as I'll show uh, soon, soon tell you. And they disgraced the office of the papacy. And so let me share a few of these popes with you. This is Pope Sixtus. He was Pope from, in that time, 1471 to 84. He was a, was a lavish spender. He became Pope by bribing the cardinals. Okay, that's how you became Pope that day. If you were wealthy from a wealthy family, you can bribe the cardinals and you get elected as Pope. He devoted his energy to enriching the family, making his family rich and he appointed one of his nephews as a cardinal at the age of only 26. So that's quite high up at the age of 26. But it was this guy who was the one who commissioned the building of the Sistine Chapel. So that's a picture there. And that was named after him. So he was a bad pope, and he was succeeded by another bad one, by the name of this guy, Innocent VIII. His name's a bit ironic, in fact, once you hear what he did. Innocent. So this innocent pope, he became pope by bribing the cardinals as well. And by the time he became pope, he in fact had 16 illegitimate children. You know, as pope, as pressure meant to be celibate. But he had 16 illegitimate, illegitimate children, and he openly acknowledged them. He didn't keep them away, hide them. He actually acknowledged them and gave them honours and riches at the expense of the church as Pope. Okay, so that's the next Pope. Then after him, there was this guy, Alexander VI. Do you know how he became Pope? Bribed his way as well. Paid the cardinals. He was probably, possibly, the most notorious Pope of all time, this guy. At the time of his election, he was already the father of eight children. You're not meant to have children if you're a celibate, if you're a priest, but somehow they had. And, and, and this guy, apparently by at least three different women, he had those eight children. But when he became Pope in his 60s, he continued to have mistresses. Now that's uh, this Pope. So this was the time of Luther. Now, when Luther came up in the scene, the Pope at that time was this guy, Pope Leo X. Now, this guy was recklessly extravagant. He promoted the interests of the family. He served to disgrace the papacy. So he was the Pope during the time Luther did his thing. But yet, despite the failures of the Pope, of so many Popes in the half century before the Reformation took place, 
You see, the Pope was in fact the sole authorised interpreter of the Bible. They, they were the one who had authority on how you are meant to understand the scriptures. And so this was said by, by the Roman Church. Whoever does not hold to the teaching of the Roman Church and the Pope as an infallible rule of faith from which even Holy Scripture draws its power and authority is a heretic. And so if you don't recognise that the Pope is infallible, well, you're a heretic. And if you are a heretic, you could be excommunicated from the church and you could be outlawed by the emperor. So it was during this time that Martin Luther was alive. And so he was wondering. He, he was a monk himself. He became a priest and then a professor in theology and he was thinking, is this right? Is this how our leaders are meant to be? Is this how our popes are meant to be? Do they really have final say? Or is it scripture alone that must have final say? Now finally, one other aspect that I'll talk about this time, and, and this is extremely important. This is the indulgences, indulgences that were sold during this time. Now, it was this that led Luther to write his famous uh, 95 Theses which he used to urge the church to reform, to change from its ways, to go back to the Bible. Now, in, in, in this uh, situation, what happened was in 1515, the Pope, Pope Leo X, he issued a decree for the sale of indulgences. Now, this Pope, we saw him before. This guy did some um, sort of shifty, dodgy business with uh, another archbishop in Germany. So he, he had a dealing with this guy, Albert, he was Archbishop in Mainz. Now, this Archbishop, he became Archbishop by paying for it. He had to take a loan from a bank, paid for it, and he became Archbishop. So he owned the bank money. And you know, Pope Leo X, he wanted to rebuild, to um, build St. Peter's Basilica, the big church in Rome today, in the Vatican. And so he needed money for that. And so they had this scheme. Let's sell these indulgences so that you can pay off your bank loan and so that I can build a church. And so that's what they did. They sold these indulgences. Now, what are they? Well, indulgences was something that the church sold. It was, so that's the church there, St. Peter's Basilica. There were letters like this, little notes that were signed by the church to say that your sins are paid for. You pay money into my box and I'll sign this and say your sins are forgiven and it will mean that you will not, that you will escape the punishment of purgatory and you can go straight to heaven. So you can pay money for yourself and you can also pay money for those of, of your parents who have already passed away and are now in purgatory. And so you could purchase these indulgences and that made the church rich. Because people will pay. Imagine that. You've got parents, grandparents who have passed away and the church is making you feel guilty. You need to pay, otherwise they're stuck in purgatory. And so that's what they did. They sold these indulgences. Now there was a popular slogan used around that time. And preachers said things like this. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. So as soon as you pop your money in, a soul of one of your relatives will spring up and go to heaven. How good is that? Pay money and get to heaven. So this was sold by the church. Now, there was a guy by the name of John Tetzel, this guy. 
He was a great salesman. He was like the car century sales, I mean, the car salesperson of the century. And he was really good at his job. He sold stacks of it, made heaps of money, and, and he went on to boast about having saved more souls by indulgences than St. Peter by the gospel. So that was his, his claim to fame. And so Martin Luther, he was living during this time. This was all happening around him. He was a priest himself. He saw what was happening at the Mass. He saw what the Pope was like, their indulgences. And he looked at Scripture. He considered the Bible and he said, Is this right? Is this the way Christians are meant to behave? Is this the way Christians are meant to live? Are these the things that Christians are meant to believe in? And so is it the Pope, is it the Church that is the authority? Or is it Scripture? And so Martin Luther, here's a picture of him. He became uh, a professor in theology at the University of Wittenberg. So he was a bright fellow. Now, the Bible was not accessible for everyone. It was in Latin. That was the language of the Bible. Not everyone could read. Many were, uh, would, weren't able to read. But him being a professor, he was able to read. He read it. He studied it. And he saw this is not right. And so what he did was he saw that none of these practices of the church was aligning with Scripture. And so on the 31st of October in 1517, he posted the 95 Theses, his 95 Theses, on the door at the church in Wittenberg. And in these Theses, he attacked the abuses of the church. He was challenging the Pope. This is not right. You can't do this. It's dangerous making people believe that they can go to heaven by paying money. That's, in fact, dangerous. And so this was the catalyst for the Reformation in the 16th century. Now, Luther, he went on to do a lot of other good stuff. He did a lot more reading of scriptures and he did a lot more writing. And so he went on to um, attack the extravagant lifestyle of the Pope. He attacked the immoral lifestyle of the clergy, of the priests. He also rejected the idea that, that priests must be celibate. Couldn't find any evidence of that in the Bible, that if you're a priest, you must be celibate. I'm glad that's the case. I want to get married, and I did. And so, so Martin Luther, he thought, you know, this is not right. This vow, you're not meant to take this vow. And so him, as a monk, later on married a nun. And so he, he, he made that right. He also attacked the idea that there's this special class of priests. And so he looked at um, 1 Peter and saw, in, in fact, all believers are priests. Once you're converted, you become part of the priesthood of God. And so he attacked all these different views of the church. And he was, in fact, quite colourful with his words as well. This is what he said about the church at that time. He said, Even the Antichrist himself, if he should come, could think of nothing to add to its wickedness. Nothing to add to the wickedness of the church. And so he said this. Because of his conviction of scriptures, he said, a simple, it's meant to be simple, a simple layman armed with scripture is to be believed above a pope or council without. Neither the church nor the pope can establish articles of faith. These must come from scripture. For the sake of scripture, we should reject pope and council. And so that was the beginning of the Reformation. And we live 
as inheritors of that tradition. And so Martin Luther, what was supreme in authority for him was not what the Pope said, was not what the Church said, but in fact was what Scripture says. And so for Martin Luther, being a rebel in the Church at the Diet of Worms in 1520, he was urged over and over again to recant, recant what he wrote and said. But in the end, he said these words, these famous words. He said, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by evident reason, for I put my faith neither in popes nor councils alone, since it is established that they have erred again and again and contradicted one another. I'm bound by the scriptural evidence adduced by me, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For it is neither safe nor right to act against one's conscience. God help me. Amen. Those powerful words before the emperor, before the pope, before the prince, he said those words. He will stand by scripture and scripture alone. And so as a result, Martin Luther, he was excommunicated by the pope. He was outlawed by the emperor. But now thinking back, what was it that he achieved? What did he achieve for us? Well, what he did what he, was he brought people back to Scripture, back to the Bible, to read the Bible for themselves. He translated the Latin Bible into German so that the normal people, the commoner, could read it. And so the slogan, Scripture alone, sola scriptura. And it is this very slogan that we Christians must be upholding today, Scripture alone. And that's because these words are not just words. These words are, in fact, the very words of God, inspired by God, breathed out by God. And this is what we saw in our reading, 2 Timothy. All scripture is God-breathed. God is the author of all that we read. Even though humans wrote it, God is the ultimate author. And we see this in 1 Thessalonians. And we also thank God, so Paul talking, uh, writing to the Thessalonians, we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God. So the words we have in this book, it's not just a book, it's in fact the word of God. And so that's why Christianity, Protestant, Evangelical, Reformed Christianity like us, must be a religion of the word because these are, in fact, God's word to us. It's God's divine revelation to us. God revealing himself to us through history, what he has done, but ultimately in the coming of his son. And so what we have here in our hands is the word of God. And so if anyone wants to know God, then it must be through scripture alone. This is God's way of revealing himself to us, recorded down for us, and ultimately by his son. You want to know God, you need scripture. You read the Bible and you encounter God. And that's why when we do evangelism, we want to point people towards the Bible, towards reading the Bible for themselves. And in our course at the moment, Christianity Explored, that's the whole idea of the course, to get people to read the book of Mark by themselves, for themselves, because when they read the Bible, they encounter God. 
Now, if scripture is the word of God, if that is what it is, then I've just got two principles for you to remember of what uh, scripture alone means, what its implications are. So two principles. And that is, scripture is supreme. If it is the word of God, then it is supreme. I listen to God before I listen to men. Secondly, it is sufficient. That is, God has revealed all that he needs to for us to know. That's all we need to know and no more. And so if scripture is in fact the word of God, then we must listen to God. God's word is supreme over our words, over my words, you know, over the tradition of the church. And so all churches have traditions. Even our church has traditions. But that sits under the authority of scripture. And so that was what Martin Luther recognised. His conscience was captive to the word of God. And so in our church, scripture is supreme. We know that and we unashamedly claim that. We believe what we believe must be tested against scripture. How we live and act must be tested against scripture. And that's why Paul urged Timothy in our passage we read before. In Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy, Paul says, preach the word. This is what you are meant to be doing. Preach the word. Not go on doing these Eucharist sacrifices of Christ, which is not right. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with the word. With great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Now, I want you to consider that. Do you think that is true, that people gather around them what their itching ears want to hear? I remember when I was a younger Christian and I was still immature. I was trying to balance between having... um, a massive bank account with lots of money to being a faithful Christian. And so when I heard a preacher on TV, uh, they're often unsafe, but I listened to this preacher on TV and he said, you need more money. I thought, yeah, I want more money. But I was just gathering around me teachers that I want to hear, what my itching ears want to hear. And we still see that today, don't we? Churches that teach what their people want to hear, where, where it's not really teaching the word, but pop psychology. Feel-good sermons. That is not teaching the Bible. You know, you become a Christian and you will be rich. You become a Christian and all your cancer and all your illnesses will be healed. You know, you're, you're gathering around you teachers which your itching ears want to hear. But the Bible must be central, otherwise we fall into error. And that's why in our church, if you haven't noticed yet, our church, we always have a sermon a Bible talk. We always do the Bible reading because we are a Bible church. We study the Bible in our growth groups. We don't just hang out. We study the Bible. In our youth group as well, we study the Bible. We are a Bible church. And I hope you'll never, ever hear a sermon here that's like a feel-good pop psychology type of sermon just to make you feel good. We are a Bible church. Because what's important here is for you to know God, to engage with God as you open the scriptures. And that's why when we do our Bible talks, expository sermons, I always encourage you to keep your Bibles open because we're working through it 
and allowing the Word of God to set the agenda on what is taught, to work through the Bible together and to, in fact, test me because I stand under Scripture as well. So, you know, if you follow along and you find that I'm saying something wrong, you need to challenge me. You need to do that because I sit under Scripture as well. You see, if a church does not teach the Bible, that's a dangerous church because it will be like what the indulgences did making false promises that you pay money and you can be saved. That is extremely dangerous. Now, in our church, we're part of the Presbyterian denomination. And if you are aware, our denomination stands by a confession called the Westminster Confession of Faith. That was written by these Westminster divines. They put together the doctrines that we must believe. Now, this confession is a confession that all ministers, Presbyterian ministers, in fact, must sign by. But you see, even this confession, as good as it is, stands under Scripture. It's subordinate, a subordinate standard to Scripture. And so the first point to remember there is Scripture is supreme. I listen to God before I listen to men. Scripture is supreme. The next thing to remember is that Scripture is sufficient. It is sufficient. It is all I need to know about God. All that I need to know about God is, in fact, in these pages. All I need to know about how I can be saved, how I can go to heaven, how I can receive eternal life, are in these pages. It is sufficient. All I need to know on how to live a good life for God, a life that pleases him, are written in the pages of this Bible. And so scripture is sufficient. Scripture alone. And so if you think about that, that should give us great confidence that in your hands, in this book, is all you need to know about life. It's all there. It is sufficient. It's like the manual to life, and you have it all. And so what this means then is if Scripture is sufficient, if someone asks me, how do I know God? How can I know God? Well, I would say, Read the Bible. Read the Bible and encounter God. Encounter Christ in the Gospels. If someone was to ask me, how can I be certain of my salvation? How can I be sure that I'm really saved? Well, I say, read the Bible. Understand it and believe it. And that is all. If someone was to say to me, uh, you know, John, last night, God actually sent me a word. He said something to me. He gave me a new word to say to you. Not sure if you heard those things before. God has given me a word to share with you. Well, if I, if I did hear that from someone, I would say, well, maybe you did hear something. But you know what? Scripture is sufficient. I actually have all I need to know. I don't need any new word from you. I have it all already. Or if someone was to say to me, I'm waiting for God to give me a calling on what to do with my life, to change careers, to do this job, to marry this person, to move house. You know what I say? Scripture's in fact sufficient. It's filled with wisdom on what to do. You don't need to wait for that calling. You know what the calling of the Bible is? Live a life that pleases God. That's the calling of the Bible. Live a godly life. And so Scripture is sufficient. It is supreme It is sufficient because it is the word of God. And that's why Christians like us must be hung up on the Bible. We must be because that's all we have from God. And so in the end, is it just a book? 
But it's not just a book. It's in fact the word of God. All that we need to know God, all that we need to know how we can be saved, and all we need to know on how we are to live a life that pleases God. It's not just a book. But let me end with the words of Luther, Martin Luther, that this might be true for us. Let our conscience be captive to the word of God, to scripture alone. So let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us and that this is all recorded in your scriptures, that as we read it, we hear you speak. And we pray, Lord, that you might help us to be Bible people, to see that your word is supreme and that it is sufficient. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.